Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm um, I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to to going with my home group um, to a um, city Bible forum event that's coming up. Um, I've got a flyer here for it, and you can find this at the rear of the church or in the hall. It's called "When the Fashion Model Met the Designer," and their guest speaker is um, a lady named Tracy Trinita. Uh, who I understand was Indonesia's first supermodel. And um, this flyer for the event, um, on the back, it talks about how successful she was. Um, You know, she's familiar with the catwalks of New York and Milan and Paris, and she, I understand, is a a film and and movie star, and um, fame and glamour, etc., etc. And... So really, the, the question is, the question is uh, for, for someone who, obviously, from a worldly perspective, has everything that a person could conceivably want, beauty, wealth, fame, glamour, power, acceptance, recognition, I mean, really, the, the question is, how did God do it? How did God bring this young woman to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, one simple reason for going to listen to Tracy is that actually it it really doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't doesn't matter if they're young or old. It doesn't matter if they're male or female, rich or poor, famous or obscure. Actually, it's always interesting, isn't it? It's always interesting to hear about how God has brought someone to a saving faith in Christ. And it's always interesting because when we hear these stories, it always glorifies God and reveals his saving handiwork in the world. Now, when it comes to testimonies, um, when it comes to people sharing their stories about how they met the Lord, how they came to faith, um, we know, don't we? We know that we're going to listen to these stories and we're, we're going to hear about some real miracles. Um, I mean, we're going to hear about someone who actually preached the gospel or told the message about Jesus. I mean, that's a miracle. And, and we're going to hear about someone who, hearing the word, believed. And that's a miracle too. That's that's the greatest miracle. But there might be other miracles. There might be, we might hear about miracles of coincidence. We, we might hear about, you know, I've heard testimonies where two people meet against all odds. It's a staggering miracle of coincidence. Or it could be a miracle of provision, an inexplicable gift that just the right moment demonstrates the love of God. Or it could be, of course, miraculous revelation. Dreams, visions, visitations by angelic beings. And of course, could be miraculous healing, blindness, cancer, deformity, disability, disease, whatever it is, often accompanying the, the, the preaching of the word, that we might see miracles of healing. Um, sometimes we hear astonishing stories of healing as a person comes to faith in Christ. And they see for themselves that Jesus really is Lord. It's true. Testable, observable reality. Jesus is Lord. And he's got the power to save. Now, of course, these things aren't unusual. I mean, Kurong has just 
tons of books about the extraordinary ways in which God has revealed Christ to people. And without question, it is good to be reminded that God still works in the world in these ways. And if perhaps you're a little bit uncertain uh, about that, um, uh, about whether God still does power miracles, then all you really need to do is get yourself somewhere where people are coming to faith in Christ in numbers, where evangelism is, is happening in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll see them. Many places around the world, you've got to stay indoors to avoid them. Uh, miracles, you see, are the stuff of conversion. Um, for conversion itself is a miracle. People seeing that Jesus Christ really is Lord, really does love them, really has the power over the things that had previously dominated or oppressed them. And um, the nation of Israel, well, she has her own conversion story. And actually, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that there were miracles, and there were signs and wonders and dreams, visions, revelations. And actually, we've been reading about this conversion story as we've made our way through the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. And two weeks ago, we, we, we read together about the most famous miracle perhaps in the Old Testament, the, the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and God parted the Red Sea and saving his people, the Israelites, who, who walked through on dry ground, who had cried out to him in prayer and God had answered. But then he threw the waters back over the pursuing Egyptian army, drowning them all. And last week we read together Exodus chapter 15, and saw how this miraculous sign had led the Israelites to grow in their faith, and how from that faith sprang singing songs of thanks and praise in celebration to God. And it's, it's a very exciting story. Um, I mean, I can imagine the nation of Israel being invited to lots of conferences to give her testimony about the amazing things that God had done for her. And... I make that comment because the birth narrative of the nation of Israel is a conversion story. And in fact, in the New Testament, it is the conversion story against which all other conversion stories tend to be measured and compared. It is the model. It is the standard. It is the language that's employed to understand the concept. Baptism, for example, is understood in the light of walking through the Red Sea. So, here's the question. After this staggering beginning, after all these miracles and signs and wonders, after this glorious beginning, how does she get on, the, the nation of Israel? H how does she get on? Well, um, uh, let's read Exodus 15, verse 22. Um, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. Um, Mara, of course, being the Hebrew word for bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Well, 
uh, Moses has led out the people. He's, he's, out, he's out the front and he's taking administrative authority. But, but we know from that which was written earlier, um, we know um, that in terms of where to go and when to go, God is leading his people. Uh, the, the, the Lord is there by way of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, miraculous, non-stop, day and night guidance, then and for the next 40 years. When the Lord stops, the people stop. When the Lord sets out, the people set out. For three days, God has led the people in the desert without them finding any water. Obviously, they're subsisting on supplies of drinking water that they were carrying, but they obviously aren't carrying much. I mean, nobody does when they're traveling on foot, do you? Because actually, water is incredibly heavy. And these folk are getting antsy. When are we going to find water? And the thing about this three-day journey is that at the end of it, they've run out of water. They find water, but it's undrinkable. And this is obviously a desperate situation, seeing as now, obviously, the nearest, closest drinking water can't be any closer than a three-day walk, which means they're going to die before they get there. Because in a desert, you can die within 24 hours if you don't have drinking water. So, so hold on, hold everything. What is going on here? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has already shown himself to be absolutely sovereign over all the powers of nature. How can this possibly be happening? Is God lost? Has he forgotten that his creatures need water? Between God and the situation, was there some kind of logistical oversight such that the production line failed and there would turned out to be saline? That is what bitter water means in the Hebrew mind. Bitter water is brackish, it's saline, it's salt water. That's what they've discovered, a salt water spring. Was there a mix-up somewhere? Or maybe, maybe God doesn't even care. Or is God's power to save somehow intermittent or qualified, on again, off again? Well, the people grumble against Moses... I mean, after all, it has to be somebody's fault. I mean, if you can't blame the leader, who can you blame? Well, th- this is the first of many stories from the books of Moses that tell us about Israel's experiences in the wilderness. Forty years. And in those 40 years, they knew times of deprivation. Lots of them. We have three such stories now back-to-back as we read our way through Exodus. We have two stories about there not being any water, and in the middle we have a story about there not being any food, and today we're going to look at the first of those three stories. These stories are important because they deal with discipleship. Conversion is all very well. But how does God build faith in his people? And and what does it mean to have faith anyway? Well, one answer to these questions is given in our text today. Um, You can read with me if you like, verses 25 and 26. I'm going to start towards the end of verse 25. There, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. 
He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Well, we can make a start. Discipleship means, doesn't it? Discipleship means learning to do things God's way. Uh, the correct response to being saved, and these people are saved. God has saved them out of Egypt. They belong to God, and God belongs to them. These are a saved people, and now they're learning about what it means to belong to God, and part of what it means to belong to God is repentance. Repentance means being sorry for trying to do things your own way in an ungodly way, ignoring God, and turning back and thereafter making the decision to doing things God's way, in God's time, in God's presence, with God. And God, plainly from this text, expects to be obeyed. Which, when you think about it, is kind of reasonable, given that he's God. And the arena for developing faith is a place, interestingly enough, it's obvious, the arena for developing faith is a place called testing. Um, It's the place of testing. To us, the word test makes us think of examinations or perhaps experiments. But in ancient thought, the idea of being tested was the idea of being provoked. Um, When you try to provoke a, a response from someone, you're testing them. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test means you shall not try to manipulate his behavior. You shall not attempt to provoke a response from him. But God is provoking Israel. God is provoking Israel to respond in order that they might see. He has intentionally led them into a place of deprivation, a place where it looked like they would run out of water, There was water, and it was saline, a place where it looked like they might even die of thirst. He did this in order to provoke a response. As is clear from the text, God expects them actually to respond to this current crisis in the light of something he has already told them. Their response should be conformed to a word already given, an instruction, a word from God. What is it that he said that they ought to be hearing, but they're not hearing? That they ought to be obeying, but they're not obeying? Well, actually, you could pick many, 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 many words, but a good one comes from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, where God said, I am the Lord... I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Oh, and I will bring you into the land... I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession, 
I am the Lord. God expects his people to respond to the current situation in the light of the certain knowledge that they're going to end up in Canaan. They, these things were said, they cried out to him in prayer, he responded, he sent them Moses. Through Moses they received this word, they've already seen five things done, there's only one remaining. They've already seen the first five things happen. They should know God keeps his promises, God keeps his word. So at this point in time, they've been freed from under the yoke of the Egyptians. They must know that God is powerful. God can save. How ought they respond then to this current crisis? God, God has promised to be our God. Inherent in that promise is the promise to provide for all of our needs. God has promised to provide for all of my needs, and yet I'm in need. How ought I respond? What might be a good thing to do? Pray. <laughs> yes, let's have a conversation about this. That'll be an interesting, that'll be a good place to start. That'll be, that'll be the obvious place to start. Um, and Moses prays. Uh, that's one person out of a thousands, but uh, that's all right, it only takes one. Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So there's prayer, and God hears the prayer and provides Moses with a solution. The solution is a miracle. Um, plenty of folk have looked at this, but there is no conceivable scientific way in which throwing any kind of piece of wood into brackish water takes the salt out. It's, this, is, uh, this is not... Um, uh, this is not folkloric solution. Um, this is a miracle. Um, but as with so many of God's miracles, God chooses to use means. Miracles are often, not always, but miracles are often through means, uh, which means that God uses something to affect his miracle. In this case, it's the branch of a tree that was chucked into water. God didn't have to do it that way, did he? He could have just said, Ta-da! But he sovereignly decided to use means with respect to this miracle. So, in fact, actually, we're with God and we're learning about God. And one of the things that we learn about God is that very frequently he uses means when it comes to miracles. We're learning something about God. We're, we're growing in our understanding of him. And what was, what, was, what was said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Well, actually it turns out that this is a lesson about healing. Um, God healed the water right in front of their eyes. Why did he do that? Well, we know why he did that. We did that. He did that so that they might learn something about him, that they might learn that he is the Lord who heals them. God heals his people. The Lord brought his people to a place where they needed something healed in order to see that the Lord heals. 
There is something else going on, something that um, Moses could not have known about then, but I'm sure he understands, I'm sure he understands about it now. Um, verse 25, literally in Hebrew, looks like this. And he, that is Moses, and he, Moses, cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water was sweet. Uh, now, you see, in, in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and in the Greek of the New Testament, there's no separate word for wood as opposed to tree. So when a translator comes up against the word for tree, he's got to decide which is the best English word to use. And undoubtedly, the best English word was piece of wood. The NIV translators get it right, but they had to make a choice. Um, the NIV translators have to do the same thing in the New Testament when they're translating Greek into English. They come across the word for tree and they have to work out, oh, should we translate that tree or wood or timber or pole or scaffold or any number of the English words that might actually suit what they meant when they wrote tree. And indeed, in the New Testament, five times we are told in the New Testament, that Jesus died upon a tree. But you won't find that anywhere in our NIV Pew Bible because in each case, um, the translators have decided that would be confusing, so we'll translate it as cross. And that's the correct thing to do because we'd be confused if we thought Jesus died upon a tree. We know he died upon a cross. Um, but if you look in older translations, such as the King James or the NASB, you might have an older translation at home, and you can see in five places it says plainly, Jesus died upon a tree, because that, that, that was no contradiction. The tree, wood, it's the same thing in the Greek language. In fact, uh, just as one example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 reads in the Greek, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Of course, that's now translated cross. But to the authors of the New Testament, it was obvious that Jesus died upon the tree because that was the only word they had to describe it. Um, so what have we here? Coming back to Moses, what have we here? Well, we actually have a tree that turns bitterness to sweetness. That's something, I reckon that's something the Hebrews should hold on to. I reckon, I reckon they'd do well to remember that a tree turns bitterness to sweetness. Because this somehow points to the character and purposes of God in the world. And, and how? Well, actually, it's a mystery. We don't know how a tree turns bitterness to sweetness, but you know what? It's um, not, a, 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 not something that's going to be a mystery forever. A tree turns bitterness to sweetness. And of course, in Christ, the veil is lifted. Through the tree of Christ, we are reconciled to God. Once we were enemies, once there was bitterness, once there was hatred, but now we are friends, indeed family, loved and beloved because of the tree, the tree of Christ. As, as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, everyone hung on a tree is cursed. And Jesus was hung on a tree to take the curse, to take the bitterness, 
the curse that ought to have come upon us because of our disobedience. We are forgiven. There is sweetness between us and God because of what Jesus did for us on the tree. That is to say, on the cross. Bitterness turned to sweetness through a tree. Um, What am I saying here? What I'm saying is that all miracles point to God, all miracles tell us something about God, and actually all miracles are about the Father revealing the Son and the Son revealing the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every miracle tells us something about Jesus. And if it doesn't tell us something about Jesus, it's actually not from God. Miracles are the Father revealing the Son and the Son revealing the Father. So, um, what did God do next? Verse 27. And they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Um, Well, God immediately, immediately brings them to a place of plenty. They've had enough time in a place of deprivation. Now comes a place of abundant provision so that the lesson might be reinforced. The Lord will provide for all of their needs. They can trust him. He is their God. That's what gods do. They provide. They care. They meet the every need. They bless. They protect. They save. That's what gods do. Fortunately, there's only one God, and he loves us. Um, We know, interestingly, along the way, in verse 27, no mention of punishment or discipline. They weren't punished. They weren't disciplined, even though they didn't do the right thing, and they did do the wrong thing. And what do we call that? We call that grace. Um, In God's patient forbearance, God sovereignly overlooked the fact that they grumbled. That was the wrong thing to do. He overlooked the fact that they didn't pray. That would have been the right thing to do. Their prayerlessness wasn't an obstacle to God working in their midst, even though by rights it ought to have been an obstacle. Their grumblings were blasphemy. They were defaming God's character. But it was overlooked. God is extremely patient with his children. Although on occasions he will sovereignly choose to limit his patience for their own good. Well, what can we learn? Um, What can we learn as Christians? I'm going to offer you some thoughts. And I'm assuming, as every Christian does, that the correct way to understand the Old Testament is that it is to be read in the light of Christ. Um, The Old Testament was written for us, and it is all about Jesus. They are our two assumptions as we we read it as Christians. The Old Testament is the Father revealing the Son and the Son revealing the Father. So here are four things that I think are good to keep in mind for us as Christians. Four things and then a conclusion. Four short points. Firstly, and kind of obviously, beginnings are often tested. Um, whether you're a new Christian or a mature Christian, 
Perhaps you're about to start a new field of endeavor. Perhaps God has called you to a new job, a new town, a new responsibility, uh, a new life in some way or another. Please remember that beginnings are often tested. And it's good to know that when you're at the beginning of something. Because when everything goes horribly wrong, you don't have to go, oh, I must be in the wrong place. I must have been hearing God's voice wrongly. You can just go, beginnings are often tested. They were for Jesus. They were for Paul. They were for Israel. I will keep trusting that the Lord has indeed led me to this point. I will keep trusting Jesus in the expectation that I will see him savingly work through this situation. Beginnings aren't always tested. It's not a rule, but it's a, it's, it's an, it's a principle. It's good to remember beginnings are often tested. Secondly, I think we need to take something to heart from the fundamental irony of this story. And the fundamental irony of this story is that God took his people to a place of need in order for them to learn that he wants to meet their every need. And it's ironic, isn't it? But it is true. That's how God works. He frequently takes his people to a place of need in order to teach them that he wants to meet their every need. As we trust Jesus in this place of need, knowing that he wants to meet my every need, I will learn more about him. I don't know what the lesson's going to be, but as I trust Jesus in a place of need, I will learn more about him. If we assume that the pattern of Israel is the archetypal pattern of learning how to belong to God, and that is a safe and biblical assumption, then we see that God will take us through seasons of deprivation and need as well as through seasons of abundance and peace. He has lessons for us in both places. And there are dangers for us in both places. Both places actually either grow faith or kill it. And actually, the choice is ours, whether I will keep on holding Jesus' hand in this place. Thirdly, it is the Lord who heals us. That's really good to remember, isn't it? Um, the Lord promises to heal us. All of the promises that God made to Israel are yes in Christ Jesus. It is the Lord's will to heal. Hold on, hold on. What does that mean if one of us gets sick? What does that mean if I get sick? What does if that mean if, if, if a fellow believer gets sick or there's an accident, disability or disease? What does that mean? Does it mean that God was off duty at that moment? Does it mean that there was a mix-up somewhere? Does it mean that God doesn't care? Or does it mean that his power to save is somehow intermittent or qualified or in itself in subjection to the chance and randomness of this fleeting life? 
Well, I've got to tell you, sometimes when you're suffering, the answers to those questions can feel yes, 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 and yes, but in actual fact, the real answers are no, 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 and no. He wasn't off duty. He does care. And his power to save is not in subjection to the chance and randomness of this life. He is sovereign over chaos. What does it mean then if one of us gets sick? What it means plainly is that God is at work in that person's life. The Father revealing the Son and the Son revealing the Father. We know that's true because it's God's promise. We we don't know the details as, as to what the lesson is or how it will work out. But we know we can always pray for healing. We can always pray for healing, knowing that as this person, as I, as as this person, as you, as we continue to trust Jesus in a bitter place, somehow or another, he's going to turn it to sweetness. Even if we have to pass through the gates of death to get there, especially if we have to pass through the gates of death to get there. He promises to heal us and to turn bitterness to sweetness through the tree. And that leads me to my last point, which is the fourth and I think the most important point of all, and that is that prayer is the stuff of discipleship. It is only in talking to God that we grow in relationship with him and in our understanding of him. Keep on holding on to his hand, keep on talking to him. Um, uh, uh, in the place of need, in the place of plenty. And whether your walk with God began with mighty miracles and signs and wonders, or maybe your walk with God began gently at a time when you were so young you can't even remember it now. However it happened for you, remember that if you believe in Jesus, you are God's child. He loves you and will look after you. You are both saved and safe. God's purpose in your life and in mine is that we might grow in our understanding of who he is, in our ability, in our ability to glorify him through trusting obedience. And boy, is he going to be patient as we develop that ability. And his will and purpose in our life is that we might learn each day more thoroughly than the day before that he loves us and that he wants to meet our every need in Christ Jesus, his son and our saviour. The Lord be with you.